How'd the party go? It was good. It's uh, it was good. It was uh, we had we had like fifteen. 15 or so kids like registered on Monday. And so I was thinking about canceling it because we got to pay for this DJ. And then all of a sudden, you know, we started sending e- emails out to families to remind them to check in. And next thing you know, Eric, I got, I got 330 kids signed up. Oh my and, gosh. uh, yeah. So we don't, we don't want to publicize that because probably wasn't the best COVID spreader event. But, uh, <laughs> I, I got to uh, tell yeah. you something that was like, you know, for most of the last year and a half, I've been telling people, my objective right now in my life is not to be the pastor of a super spreader event, okay? <laughs> Same. This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen for the extraordinary stories dwelling inside every ordinary voice. Today, I'm talking with a person who was once described by a neighbor as a man with one foot in two worlds. As a citizen, he is a progressive educator working with at-risk youth. As a soldier, he is a company commander with two year-long tours of duty under his belt, one in Kosovo, the other in Iraq. I thought the contrast between the two would make for an interesting conversation. I think it did, and I hope you agree. So let's begin today's show, The Citizen Soldier. We often think of the National Guard as citizen soldiers, although I think citizen soldier is a term used in our culture with not much understanding of what it means. Searching the internet, I found this description from an article written by Raphael Cohen, a senior political analyst at RAND Corporation. He described the general, generally accepted academic definition as defined by four traits. Obligatory meaning compulsory service, fulfilling part of one's duties as a citizen. Universal, reflective of a nation, not just one segment of the population. Having legitimacy by democratic standards, meaning popular support. And finally, personnel identifies themselves as citizens first. My guest today is a citizen first soldier. Not his words, but mine. He is a member of the congregation I serve, Advent United Methodist Church in Egan, Minnesota. So let's meet our guest. My name is Nicholas John Vogel. I have been into the church ever since I was a little kid, and I think it was Pastor Leon back in the day. Um, Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a Pastor Leon? 
I think it was Leon. Was it not? I remember because my mom was singing in the choir, and I have three brothers, and we were kind of messing around in the congregation. And I remember him connecting with my mom after church, and my mom was absolutely devastated by the behavior of her sons uh, in the congregation. And that guiltiest charge, that was yeah. definitely me. And uh, anyway, I've, I've got uh, I've got three brothers. Uh, my oldest is Joe. Next, uh, oldest is Tom. And then my younger brother, Dan. We've all been raised into the church. Um, I have worked with uh, Lindsay Neerling on the, uh, working with the youth for a number of years until I started having my own children. I've been singing with Amen uh, ever since I graduated college, so it's probably going on 15 years. Um, I'm currently the Dean of Students at Valley View Middle School, uh, located on 90th and Portland on the east side of Bloomington. And I am a company commander in the Minnesota Army National Guard. I've just hit my 20 years of service. For the record, there was no Pastor Leon, which in a strange way kind of validates Nick's story. He didn't pay enough attention in church to learn the pastor's name. (laughs) But I believe he was referring to Lauren Nelson, the founding pastor of Advent. But as he was talking, I kind of interrupted the introduction to ask a question that had been on my mind for quite some time. So I have, I have to ask this question, okay? okay? You don't have to answer it. This doesn't have to be recorded. I have a, a, yep. When you talk about your spouse, you always call her life partner. Is Correct. that intentional? or how, well, Give me a background. What is that? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. So I have been more intentional in pronoun usage and using gender-inclusive language. Right. I think that oftentimes when we use the term... I mean, we could, we could get, you know, we could go pretty far and do the, you know, ball and chain or wife. I think that comes with it, a connotation that people can start making assumptions Mm -hmm. where I feel like people have asked me this question in the past and like, why do you, why do you use that term? One, it's gender inclusive. Two, it's intentional for me that that's, that's a life partner that I chose and, and she chose for me. And it's, it's, it is funny you mentioned that because when I first started using it, I remember her bringing it up at dinner one time. And she said, you start to call me your chosen life partner. Can you share some more about that? And I did. And I did. And I, and I kind of I shared that story. Is, is one, being more gender uh, inclusive. And, and two, probably really highlighting what it is that a spouse actually does. Right. You know, we, we ch- we've chose each other on this journey of life. Right. Is she good with it? Yes. She likes it. She likes it a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm for the, for, for, well, for you knowing, and, and for those listening out there, um, my life partner, Rachel, she is a cancer researcher at the university of Minnesota. And the reason I say that is we have an opportunity where I feel like a very male-dominated field. She's blazing the trails for for females behind her. Uh, she's uh, she's a PhD level professor at the University of Minnesota, 
you know, quite frankly, I, I, I take a lot of pride in, in sharing that. This was not the answer I was expecting from a company commander in United States Army National Guard. Yet in saying that, I'm stereotyping Nick by his title, the same way the term wife can produce a false assumption about a spouse. Nick is voluntarily rethinking the institution of marriage. He could have told me life partner was a designation he was more comfortable using and left it at that. Yet he delved into the chosen aspect of their vows. Life partner serves to remind them their vows did not stop with the spoken promise on a special day. They chose each other for life. The decision not to use wife also removes traditional expectations that sometimes work their way into the subconscious practices of married couples, even when they don't want their relationship defined by those roles. Listening to him talk reminds me of the burden of the title, Pastor's Wife. I invite listeners to consider this brief exchange a little deeper. Fifty years ago, Dr. Rachel Isaacson Vogel, cancer epidemiologist and assistant professor in the Department of OBGYN and Women's Health at the University of Minnesota, would have been listed in a church directory as Mrs. Nick Vogel. She wouldn't have even had a name. My chosen life partner, her name is Rachel, as I previously mentioned. She is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota in the Women's Cancer Research Center of the Gynecologic Oncology. She primarily works with uh, women in cancer, um, and uh, her that passion is, <clears throat> without getting too emotional, that passion is derived from losing her brother to glioblastoma at the age of uh, 24, and, and he fought his two-year battle uh, of cancer. Um, we have two kids together. Ellie is six, and she's a first grader at Thomas Lake Elementary. And then we have a three-year-old, Nico, who is at Creative Wonders School here in Egan. I hope you're getting an idea that Nick is a little different as far as uh, soldiers go. And I mean that in the best possible way. But still, I'm curious about how he got involved in the military and what was formative about the experience for him. You and your brothers, I mean, your whole family is a deep military family, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We, we kind of have a... Uh, stereotypical view of what a, a military mind, how they vote, how they act, how they look, and um, um, and, and you're not it. No, I'm not. <laughs> so tell me, uh, take it, take me back. How did you? How, sure. What was that journey to get involved in the military? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. Um, I, I am the grandson of a very very proud uh, Purple Heart recipient, so that would be on my dad's side, my paternal grandfather, Myron Vogel. Uh, Purple Heart recipient. My dad also served just about, I think it was a two to four year stint in Germany. But ultimately, I, Eric, I have to be honest, you know, some people would say, hey, they joined for, they joined for pride. They joined to, because they want to serve their country. Um, I could sit here and say those reasons all day long, but here's what it ultimately came down to is there are four of us in our family 
And my oldest brother, Joe, joined the Minnesota National Guard about a year out of high school. He joined in 97. He graduated Egan High School in 96. So I'm five years his junior. And I remember coming home from school and he'd be getting these checks in the mail. I was like, oh, I'm kind of I'm kind of motivated by money. But ultimately, what it really came down to is that I knew I wanted to go to college. And, and I think all of us really wanted to go to college. But my mom was the primary breadwinner as a principal. And my dad was throwing bags at Northwest Airlines. And there just wasn't enough money to go around. So they made it very clear early on in high school that we were going to fund our own college education. To be honest, I, I wasn't the, a rock star athlete. I wasn't going to qualify for any type of academic scholarship. And so one of the ways I found that would supplement my tuition would be joining the Minnesota National Guard. So uh, I actually joined the summer of my before my senior year. And uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. I, I joined just five weeks before 9-11. In fact, I just hit my it was a 20 year anniversary of 9-11. And I joined uh, just at the end of at the end of July. And in high school, I was involved in, in theater. And I in my senior year, I was in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor uh, Dreamcoat. And uh, I joined the Army, and then I had long hair going. And so I had to get this letter from my director saying, hey, Nick has to have his hair grown out because he's in this show. And then on the weekends, I put my uniform on and go play play soldier for the weekend with this, with this long hair. So it's kind of kind of out of context a little bit. All my senior year, I was drilling with my unit, going to school, uh, you know, pulling a pretty much a B average. I was a just in the middle of the road type of a high school student. I'll never forget, you know, you walk across the stage and they say, you know, Eric Elkins going to Harvard University. John Smith is going to do hey, Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm like going, I got to tell you something. If you had a B average in school, you're a rocket scientist to me because well, I was a little C plus, uh, maybe okay, maybe a share, shade below that. Okay, so, but I'll never forget. You know, they're recognizing people. Uh, they're saying, "Well, Nick Vogel, Minnesota National Guard, Inver Hills Community College," and it's like, wah wah. You know, and and it, it but I, I took pride in that. I, I took pride in knowing, knowing what I was going to do. I was going to join. I've already joined the the guard. And since I knew I had to pay for it, I was proud going to Inver Hills Community College, living at home, paying my tuition, and, and saving those funds. I'm not sure if it was Nick's intent, but he opens up an important issue for parents and youth about pursuing higher education. I went to a small liberal arts college because it was the most affordable option for a family who had no money. Today, I could not attend that same college without incurring a paralyzing amount of debt. Not only is the military a viable option for securing an education, community college provides the opportunity for young adults to adjust to post-high school life as they figure out their ultimate career choice. The truth is, there's a ton of established professionals who began their education at community college, and a lot of Harvard graduates who went nowhere. Education is the ultimate goal of college, not prestige. And Eric, I lasted one semester at, at Inver Hills. It was the spring 
of 2003, I was at Ember Hills. And then I'll never forget, October 3rd, 2003 is when I got a phone call. I was coming out of my Communications 1000 class, and I get a call from my supervisor saying, you're getting on a plane and going to Kosovo. And my mom was the assistant principal at Invergrove Heights Middle School, and I went right over to her, and I will, I'm 38 years old now, and I don't care for all the young people listening out there, you will always need your mom. Because I went over to tell my mom right away, and I lost it. I was completely emotional. I just shared with my mom that I was going to be away for a year at the age of, what was I, 19 at the time, that I was going to get on a plane, not see anybody for a year. And remember, there's no FaceTime. There was no iPhones. We were using, wait for it, we were using calling cards, people, calling cards back then. And... uh I just remember my mom being as strong as she ever was and saying, yep, we're going to, we got this. And six days later, I was gone. The transition from child to adult happens in those years after high school. For some, the change is gradual. For Nick, it comes suddenly and out of the blue on October 3rd, 2003. He also makes another important point. A child will become an adult, but that child will always be a son of or a daughter of a parent. The dynamics of that formative relationship will always remain and be critical to self-identity. Long, long story short, I came back um, from my first deployment. I re-enrolled at Ember Hills Community College and uh, got my generals taken care of and then transferred to Hamlin University in the fall of 2005 to finish up my bachelor's. So because I may or may not have been drinking margaritas with your mom and dad uh, a short time ago. (laughs) Are you sure you want to tell me what? (laughs) Um, You know, I love the transparency and honesty on this pod. I don't, I don't, we do not hide. Okay. (laughs) There wasn't a plural there. Okay, I just want sure. you to know. It was Margarita is that each one was having one. Okay, but uh, um, that's what I tell myself too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll listen to this, and then there that'll be a go. first step to healing. I don't know. Yep. They were. They kind of told me that you got a letter to go to West Point. Oh, I. <laughs> I guess I breezed over that, huh? Didn't I? Yeah, you just so, kind of blow. Yeah. You hold on. You breezed over the opportunity to go to West Point because you went to Inver Hills Community College. I hope now at this point in your life you see a different wisdom with that one, if you know what I mean. What an idiot. Uh, I didn't okay, you know, for the record, I did not call you an idiot. I'm just saying no, I, just, I did. I, I call myself an idiot. Um yeah, there was a there was an offer on the table when I was down I was, I was down at base of training, and the opportunity arose. And I remember, again, using a calling card, talking to my mom, talking to my dad about, about the opportunity. And, you know, doing research back then. And I, and I, I, I can say it now because it's, I mean, we're almost 20 years ago. Doing research back then was much harder to figure out, you know, what, that, what, what was that experience going to be like had I gone to West Point? What does that look like? Whereas now I can tell you in five seconds and I can get five people's different perspectives mm-hmm. right online. 
Well, I didn't really have that information in front of me. So all I really had was the recruiter from West Point, and I didn't really have anybody else. Who who had just gone through West Point? What does that experience look like? Your your formative years of you know, uh, eighteen years old, a very high level, rigorous program of four years, and yeah, you come out as a second lieutenant, but but at what cost? At what cost is right on the money. Years ago, I used to lead an event at West Point. I got to know the chaplain serving the institution. The stories he shared with me about life on campus were eye-opening. It is rigorous, unforgiving, demanding, and takes a heavy psychological toll on the cadets. Not that Nick couldn't handle it. I'm sure he could adapt. But it definitely would have formed him. And honestly most likely in a different direction than he wanted to go. Consistent with his decision to call his spouse life partner, this was an intentional choice Nick made about his life. (laughs) Until he was ridiculed by his pastor, it was a choice he probably never regretted. Well, and still does not regret. West Point, for all its prestige, was not his ultimate passion. So what was? I knew my ultimate passion was going to be working with students. And so while I was on active duty, I acquired my school counseling master's at Minnesota State University, Mankato. And so I was working during the day at the Armory in Rosemount. And then at night, I would drive down to Mankato to go to my classes. And once I completed my master's degree, I began applying. And I ultimately landed at Olson Middle School completely in the opposite end of town in Bloomington. So on the west side of Bloomington, for those of you familiar, is more affluent. And then when a position opened up as the dean at Valley View in a less affluent, more diverse, high poverty area, I applied for and I went into administration and now I'm the dean of students. What's the racial breakdown of your school? I'd say we're about 34%... Latino, Hispanic, I'd say 40 or so, um, Somali, black. And then I think we're about 17% white and the rest, we got a pretty decent mix. Okay. I would tell you, Eric, the, I'd say over, I think we're probably close to 90% of my students qualified for free and reduced lunch. Right. So, I'm the minority as a, you know, looking right. like me and you. This it was an intentional move on your part, both education. Absolutely. Both yep. education and that diverse population. Correct. That was an intentional move. That's a very good point. Yep. Intentional choices are a consistent theme running through this entire interview. And I want those listening to fully appreciate the intentional choice to leave Olson Middle School for Valley View. Most people at Nick's stage in life choose the more comfortable setting. He decided... That was not his passion nor his calling. You know, the Catholic Church does a much better job than Protestant churches at promoting the concept of vocation among its members. Vocation is one's response to a call from beyond oneself to use one's strengths and gifts to make the world a better place through service, creativity, and leadership. I didn't speak to Rachel, Nick's life partner, 
But as he described it, her job is a vocation, and so is Nick's, both in school and in a uniform. I know God has called him in this direction, whether Nick knows it or not. No, the clouds did not part open and a holy light shine down upon his head. Still, even children nutsing around in a sanctuary still retain the words of Pastor Leon, <laughs> even if they can't remember his name. And the most memorable sermons are often spoken around a dining room table. I would always work with parents, you know, of, of counselors that mm-hmm. were just amazing working with people. And they would come up and tell me, and I'm, oh, my, my child wants to be a social worker and work with at-risk people. And it's, I just, I, how do I tell them that's a dead-end job? It's <laughs> a great idea. I'm, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I just kind of feel like changing the world is kind of a <laughs> uplifting yes. thing, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, and we need poor people. We need more people in the field. And yeah, it's hard work. Well, and the other thing too, and I, I hope, I don't know if you do, you probably do. Um, and it just came up again tonight, but it's always been a very big passion of mine is to getting males into leadership positions with younger populations because there's such a deficit, regardless of race. Yeah. But especially, and I would sit there and go, regardless of uh, uh, socioeconomic background as well, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. a void of male quality male leadership for these young kids in their formative years. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Eric. There are so many conversations I've had with moms of my students, and 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 I and I, I realize I'm coming out of my humble zone, but where moms do thank me for being that person for their child because regardless of what happened, that father figure isn't physically present in their lives. And and I you know, I <laughs> I have to be honest, I, I take that that role and that responsibility and those words that those moms say to me, I take them extremely seriously and personally. And I I I hope I hope that I'm providing that that role model that those children need. I needed to include that exchange between us because it's important for people to hear. But now, we move into the reason why I wanted to interview Nick in the first place. Let me apologize up front for tripping over my words and the poor choice of wording. I wasn't really sure how to ask the question I wanted to ask, and as it turned out, it was more of a statement than a question. Nick's pause in answering is an indication that this is the unavoidable cross-section of his life. This is where Citizen Nick crashes into Captain Vogel. You know, sometimes you say some, something really innocent in passing, and you don't know the impact of it. But um, last summer, I joined the clergy march for the, the George Floyd thing. And it was kind of interesting because didn't you get called up to be on guard at that time? Yeah. If, uh, I, actually, my older brother, Joe, we both were called up. We were working overnights at, at the Capitol. I'm not a March kind of person. I, I'm a dedicated person to working for racial equality. I'm just not an, uh, a, a March kind of person. And I was very clear in saying the reason I was marching is because our district superintendent, uh, who, who happens to be black, asked us to. 
and I oh, wanted okay. to support her, and I wanted to be Excellent. part of that. The climate's so divisive. And you said, thank you for marching. How do you explain those two things? You're sitting there working guard duty to protect something, at the same time thanking people for marching. Yeah. You know, it's a tough one. Uh, I uh, I was getting the mail the other day, and uh, my na- my neighbor came in came and chatted with me, and she she brought up COVID and she brought up the vaccine, and uh, she kind of looked at me and she said, "You know, you kind of got a foot in each camp here." And I knew exactly what she meant. I knew exactly what she meant because on the weekends I, I I wear a uniform, but during the week. I, I worked for a very marginalized population. And so, and so I get what she was saying. Um, but to get, getting back to your point, um, I will share with you is uh, I marched in my – I am not a marcher. So, Eric, uh, you and I are just – we are the same. I, I do not march. It's not – it's just not my thing. It's not how I choose to give. It's not how I choose to support. But I will share with you last July – I chose to march. It was a it was a Black Lives Matter event. It was actually at Kennedy High School. So my students, after they leave the middle school, they go to Kennedy. And one of the organizers was Orhan Azizi. I've been friends with him for a number of years. Uh, he organized it, and I felt compelled to to support Orhan and so, to support marginalized populations. It was a peaceful protest. I, I think marginalized people have been marginalized. The population has been marginalized. When they've spoken, they haven't been heard. And so I try to I try to really seek understanding and, and seek perspective. And if you not if you don't feel like you're being heard, people are louder. And they're louder with their voices and they're louder with their actions. And let me be clear, I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> I know it's extremely controversial, but if they don't feel heard, their actions and their voices are going to be louder. Do I support looting and rioting? No, absolutely not. In fact, anytime anything happens with regard to civil unrest, I pray to God no one gets hurt. Mm -hmm. Because if someone gets hurt, the whole purpose is out the window. And now we just have to start over again. But when these things happen, we have to ask ourselves, do we have the right voices? Do we have the right people at the table? And sometimes, sometimes voting isn't enough. It's just not enough. And so what you have to ask yourselves, and I know this is an extremely humbling thing to do, but you have to ask yourself, what are we missing? What else needs to happen? And what is the action step? At school, sometimes us in administration, we will kind of get this reputation, if you will, that that we're soft. Mm -hmm. I push back on that. And I do so ever so delicately with my staff. Now more than ever, and you can disagree, and that's just fine. Now more than ever, it is relationships over rigor. And it's not to say I am compromising standards or lowering expectations. What I'm saying is 
in order to implement rigor in the classroom, in the school, you have to have a relationship with your kids. <laughs> you just have to. <laughs> the Otherwise, it, learning will not happen. Because I can share with you that our students today, now more than ever, have so much to say. And what they're saying, Eric, is important. Their voice matters. Mm -hmm. So it's allowed them time and space to feel heard, foster that relationship that they are yearning for, and then, and only then, can we get down to learning. I don't think I have much to add to Nick's reflection, except to say, maybe the question isn't, do we have the right voices at the table, but do we have the right ears? When people are not heard, they will speak louder. What he says, in my mind, is true of the events in the 3rd Precinct of Minneapolis in May of 2020, and at the Capitol Building on January 6, 2021. Who are the good voices? Who are the destructive voices? And what do we need to hear? In responding to my question about the protest, Nick eventually talks about relationships. In doing so, he weaves together into a common thread the protest, the classroom, and his military command. Do you have any friends in the military with your attitudes? <laughs> 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 oh geez you know it, it's it is funny because i, I you know um yeah I, I have plenty of friends in the military and you know we may have voted for different candidates but you know we've when you serve together overseas in 130 140 degree heat you you do develop a, a lifelong bond and, and i still have a very, very healthy banter with a great friend of mine who at one point we were joking along with our wives and we said, you know, we spent more time with each other as soldiers than we had with our, with our spouses. Right. You know, the military is, is predominantly, um, you know, more on the Republican side, at least in, in my peer group. But it also leads to very, I think, um, intriguing and uh, intriguing conversations and healthy conversations, because I think what's What's missing right now, and as cliche as it may sound, is that we're so divided, we are choosing not to listen to each other. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's a really, a real healthy way to, to, to move into the, into the future. I couldn't talk to a company commander without asking him about the U.S. decision to pull out of Afghanistan. Full disclosure, full transparency. I, I did not serve in Afghanistan. I served two year-long each tours, one of which was in Kosovo that I previously discussed in 2003, 2004. And then I served with my oldest brother, Joe, in Iraq from 2009 to 2010. So I, I haven't set foot in, in Afghanistan, but I have spent plenty of time in Iraq. And here's what I'll share. You know, we signed up to do a job. We each have a, a commander-in-chief, and we follow those orders, and we follow those orders to a T. My heart and my empathy goes out to those individuals that feel like their work in Afghanistan was not recognized. There's another side of the coin to this, though. We have been in Afghanistan for so long. 
we've been fighting these wars for an inordinate amount of time. And I think we need to ask ourselves at what cost, not the financial cost. I'm talking about those individuals that weren't as lucky as my two brothers and I to get on a plane to come home. Un- unscathed physically. Un- physically. And of course there are, there are things beneath the surface, but it's not to say that your work wasn't recognized, but we've been in there for so long and this isn't a, uh, this isn't a current president versus a prior administration type of an issue. We've been in, in these countries for well over four administrations and four administrations, four administrations. administrations. And so I, I would now we can all look into the crystal ball, but I would venture to guess that if another candidate won, we would be blaming the other party for what's transpiring. Now we are so divided. It's just, we're just going to start attacking the other party because now it's their fault. I, I certainly recognize and I celebrate the work that any individual has done in Afghanistan. I, I would like to believe I've had the same effect in Iraq and shortly after my brother and I, we demobilized and came home, they closed down, which was a contingency operating base Basra and we provided it back over to the Iraqi people. It's not to say that the work that we did wasn't warranted or not appreciated, it's just that was a part of the plan in accordance with the orders of those appointed over us. Before we listen to this last segment, let me set the context. I spoke with Nick on a Friday night after he hosted a large school event. He was leaving the next morning for Arizona. His plans included attending the Minnesota Vikings-Arizona Cardinals football game on Sunday. But I asked him a question I ask most guests in the show. What role does faith play in your life? How does your faith play a role now, daily? Whether it be in Iraq or serving on a weekend or, I don't know, missing church and flying to a Vikings game, but I don't want to point on any of that kind of stuff. You know, I don't know. I guess it's online. You can watch it. You, you know. Gotta bring it up. <laughs> you, know, you know, I was, I, I was gonna, I was thinking of a way to end this on a really, really good note. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. I, 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 no, I, no, it's funny. It's, I it's submarined good. that one. I'm sorry. Um, no, but I seriously. No, it's good. I'm gonna take. I'll, I'm gonna take a different approach to this. Mm-hmm. In 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 coming through, coming through confirmation before your time, Eric. I, I came through with Pastor Phil Emerson, and I probably have more questions than answers. And of course, 25 years later, I probably still have more questions than answer answers. Welcome to Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember really, really struggling in confirmation, really struggling. And my dad did me right, and my mom did me right. My dad worked his tail off for us kids. He worked extremely hard and without getting too emotional right now he was always working the weekends i remember he wanted us in church and it was up to my mom to make sure that we were in church and what's leading me to this is that i remember going through confirmation and i i and this is where i struggled is i felt like i was taught having these conversations with phil and i said you got let's let's just call it 
200 or 300 people sitting in church every Sunday. Is that where God wants those individuals to be? Or could we use those 200 to 300 individuals out in the community trying to make the world a better place? And now 25 years later, I have the same question on my mind. Is being a good Christian sitting in the seat, no offense to you, listening to the good pastor in front every Sunday? Or is it, is it, is it one or the other, or is it both? Or is it a good Christian is doing the good work each and every day? And, I, and of course, I, I, I'm alluding to myself in some regard is because we've made a family choice that we're not quite ready to come back to church in person due to some of the, the risks out there. But does that make me any less of a Christian? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm biased, of course. I certainly hope not. But we made that concerted and educated choice that we're just we're not quite at that at that comfort level yet. I, I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. I struggle with what I'll leave at this. What does Christianity, what does a good good Christian look like? That's where I struggle, I feel like. Uh, so there so, you go, tell me. Yeah, they're in church. Let me just tell you. That. <laughs> Okay, I cheated up for you. It's on the high tee. You got your one wood out. I had to tell you right. Blast it. right? I'm telling you. And you know what? If the Vikings play at noon, you better be listening to my sermon if it goes overboard. Yeah, maybe two or church. three times. Two or three times. Yeah. They're in church, Vogel. Okay, got it. In reflecting upon my conversation with Nick, my thoughts ventured off into Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings that parents best honor their children. I thought it consistent with Nick's deep connection to his own family and his passion for teaching. The wisdom is designed to answer questions about life, but not the really big questions, the questions one might ask in the sanctuary in the presence of God, but the more common everyday questions about life. Kind of like, where should a good Christian be on a Sunday morning? Let me share with you the first couple of verses from Proverbs 1 and see if you can hear our conversation in these words. The purpose of Proverbs is to teach wisdom and discipline, to help one understand wise sayings. They provide insightful instruction, which is righteous, just, and full of integrity. They make the naive mature, the young knowledgeable and discreet, The wise hear them and grow in wisdom. Those with understanding gain guidance. Nick listened to the wisdom of his parents. They are the ones he turned to in a time of need. The wisdom gained he attempts to pass on to his own children, those who are biologically his and those for whom he takes responsibility at school, hoping through these lessons they might gain wisdom, discipline, and guidance. There is another wisdom saying, that answers the question about what does God want. It comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a verse that I often cite, but is very applicable here. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Worship is a physical act of gratitude. It gives thanks for the blessings we have no idea how we received. 
Evidence clearly and decisively bear this out. Grateful people are happy people. This verse from Micah is distinguished by the verbs do, love, walk. It does not say be humble, but walk humbly. The more I thought about it, the more inclined I am to turn Nick's wisdom back on himself. Why do soldiers train? Why not just give them a gun and tell them to go fight? Isn't that the point, to go fight? What does a party have to do with education? What value is there in dancing together? Shouldn't you be spending your time teaching math? Soldiers train so they know what to do. And the same is true of faith. We worship so we know how to do justice and how to love kindness and walk humbly with God. We worship for the purpose of building relationships as well, to remind us we are not alone in the world, something we took for granted until we were unable to be together to worship. That's our show. I want to thank Nick for sharing and you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a little something along the way. Check out the website, OrdinaryVoices.org, for more interviews and maybe perhaps consider joining us for worship at Advent. We're in Egan, Minnesota, and we'd love to have you. You can be there in person at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning or join us online and watch us on YouTube at our YouTube channel, Advent UMC Egan. And you know what? You can even watch us after the Viking game. (laughs) Thanks again for listening, and I hope you can join me again for my next conversation with an ordinary voice. Zwei Gestalten Sie kamen in